Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. My name is Peter T. Coleman, and I'm coming to you from the studios of WKCR at Columbia University. The show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. I have two special guests on the show with me today. My name is Meredith Smith, and I'm the host of today's show. I'm a project coordinator at AC4, leading a couple different initiatives, including this Conversations from the Leading Edge show. And I'm honored to have Dr. Michael Hanchett Hansen, an expert on creativity, here with me today, and also another colleague and friend at Teachers College, Melissa Cesarano, who will be a co uh, interviewer and joining the conversation with us today. Um, I'm going to give a little bio on Dr. Michael Hanchett Hansen. He is a psychologist, professor, and educational researcher. For over 15 years now, he's been teaching about creativity at Columbia's Teachers College. He directs the master's concentration in creativity and cognition there in the programs of cognitive studies and developmental psychology in the Department of Human Development. As an educational researcher, Professor Hansen has his own R&D consultant firm, assisting teachers and organizations to develop their curriculum and programs. Professor Hansen has given talks and written on the role of creativity in the arts classroom and in the field of education as a whole. He has a book that was just published in October 2015 titled World Making, Psychology and the Ideology of Creativity. This book is theoretical but also practical for scholars and practitioners. I'm delighted to have Professor Hansen on the show with me today. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. And also, um, I want to introduce Melissa Cesarano. Melissa is a cognitive scientist, a writer, an improviser, and a comedic actress. Melissa is currently a PhD candidate in cognitive studies at Columbia, where she researches social-emotional learning and people's intuitive knowledge about the emotion system. She has co-founded her own sketch comedy troupe and is working on a devised theatrical adaptation of Kafka's Metamorphosis with New York City's Inversion Theater, which opens in late April. Melissa, uh, welcome to the show. Great to have you here with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. And um, one thing I, I love about your, your approach that is so unique is how you really show how complex creativity is. It's, you know, it seems to be this simple concept that we're always saying, oh, we want more creativity in the classroom or as teachers wanting to increase creativity of the students. But um, you know, in this book and in your work, it seems like you really show how complex creativity is and that it's not entirely or always um, good. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's what, <clears throat> when I got into the classroom and started having to actually teach this stuff, uh, I realized that we had such a huge range of theories about creativity. Mm -hmm. And although in our daily lives when we talk about it, a lot of the ideas that permeate these theories, we sort of just clump together and easily go from one to the other. When you actually started thinking about them, they didn't fit together all that well. And 
Um, so that's when I started thinking about it not so much as a thing uh, that we had to find or trait or a force even, but as an idea that we use to manage and navigate and promote change. So Meredith and I met in your creativity class a few years ago yes. in which we discussed all of these theories and um, to come to a, a better understanding of creativity. And at times, while these theories made sense, um, it sometimes felt like the concept of creativity was even a bit elusive. Like we would learn about these theories, but then we'd almost sort of lose it um, because it's so much more complicated than it seems before coming into the class. And um, so in your most recent book, you take, an, uh, you take an interesting position in defining creativity. You write about the history of the idea in the field of psychology and its links to ideology. Can you explain how you define creativity here? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not the first one to talk about it as ideology. Uh, Robert Paul Wiener wrote a really influential book uh, called Creativity and Beyond back in 2000, where he talked about some of the downsides and the ideology of creativity. And even um, and some leading uh, voices in the um, psychological researchers in the field of creativity have talked about it as an, uh, having an ideological component. Um, and the way I've come to think of it is not, and I do call it ideology very self-consciously, not as a negative, not, I'm not thinking of it as a Marxist sort of concept of ideology, but as in a more of a cognitive sense of the implicit and explicit theories we have of the world that allow us to act in the world. And I use ideology instead of something like worldview because I want to remind us for this idea that it has real negative implications in many situations. Um, it also has positive implications, as many of the positive things that uh, you know, we hear about when we hear people uh, waxing poetic about creativity. But it also can, do some can have some real negative implications. You know, we forget that in the last recession that we went through, those mortgage-backed securities that were, became infamous for helping to bring down the system previously had been seen, and even there were some nominations for awards in Wall Street for, as creative. Um, we are facing uh, some global climate issues right now, and we have to remember that a lot of the problems that we're facing are coming from things that have been called creative. Right. So we have this idea that, that being wholly positive that has been promoted since the late 19th century, um, but I want to promote this idea that it has positive, negative, and in some ideas, some neutral effects, but mostly it has powerful effects. More and more, you know, when I started doing this 15 years ago, there would maybe be a conference here or there I could go to and speak on. Now, every week, I get email after email after email about different events which are focusing on creativity. It really is powerful. Anna Kraft, a wonderful theorist uh, who's recently passed away, talked about it as being the zeitgeist of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And so we have this really powerful idea. It's our idea. It has a history. That history is linked ideologically to especially America and the Cold War coming out of the 50s and 60s and continues to have ideological implications. And that's really the key point, is thinking that this idea has a history and that we are continuing to make that history and the responsibilities around that. Right. Um, and related to that, I think one of my favorite quotes from your book is that 
We use the concept of creativity to participate in, manage, evaluate, and promote change. And change is one of the most striking characteristics of our times. Very related to um, what you were just talking about, I think. Yeah, that keeps me really interested in it. And that has led to, you know, like I say, it has, this idea has a history. We hear about it. It's like the air we breathe, so we don't think about this. But it does have a history, and it has come from the 19th century, early 19th century, when the word creativity, by the way, didn't exist. We called it creativeness. And you remember Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, <laughs> yes, right? I love that book. Um, so that's early 19th century, and that is sort of the warning, and that's that early 19th century view We're going into Romanticism, that, yes, this idea of people are creative, but it's a pretty dangerous thing. Mm-hmm, right. Uh, uh, John Mason has done a wonderful intellectual history of the idea of creativity just in the 19th century, and he talks about how that caution falls away toward the end of the 19th century coming into the 20th century with mm-hmm. modernism, and all of a sudden it is all good all the time and more is better. And mm-hmm. that's sort of the thing we're struggling with and actually moving out of these days. Right. Yeah, in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I I came away thinking that with, with the pursuit of knowledge comes a great responsibility, and I, I believe that the same is true for creativity, that with it comes... A kind of responsibility. Yes, uh, and you know that's really where, uh, as I said, th- it has an ongoing history. And part of what I talk about in the book, where I end up, is I talk about the trends about where the theories of creativity are going by the researchers. Um, and it's really sort of an exciting thing. I think actually we've just gotten to the good part <laughs> of the story. Um, it is. Um, an increasing emphasis that moves away from ideation, from just having an idea, indeed even questions the concept of an individual having an idea, because, to quote Newton, right, we stand, even the great ones stand on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. Um, And we pull ideas from all kinds of different people from our culture. Um, And so the new cultural and social psychologists who are working with what what I've called the participatory, the emerging participatory synthesis, um, people like myself, uh, Vlad Glavinu in uh, at Aalborg University in Denmark, uh, Peter Clapp up at, Mar- at Project Zero in Harvard. Uh, the- we're working with these ideas of thinking about participation in change, and that and that changes everything. Um, it, we stop worrying about who the brilliant person in the wor- in the room is and how that person's going to get credit for an idea. And we start thinking about what our roles in the ongoing um, processes of change will be. And those roles have huge implications for ethics. There's um, so many things to I want to follow up on from your your comment. I definitely want to get into this participation and change Mm -hmm. um, that you mentioned. But um, just to make sure I'm um, getting this definition of creativity that you're putting Mm -hmm. forth so are you um you know with the it sounds like it's almost this is there a sense that anyone can have it or um just to kind of think about the the basics for those that aren't into the research um it is you know and this is the big issue that the big move to make right because we are used to, and a lot of it comes from psychological research coming out of in, and the way we thought of it in the 19th century and then in the 20th century. The idea of creativity 
gains momentum in the 19th century and gains this momentum of becoming this positive idea, not alone, but in concert with a lot of other ideas that are emerging at that time. Market economics, individualism, the idea of genius as a, of something mm -hmm. an individual is. The use of the word culture, to maybe not agrarian, but to talk about societies. Mm -hmm. So we come out of the 19th century with this great person, actually, as Vlad Glavinu says, great man theory that is ideologically gender skewed, um, that, that it is this, in, this great individual who has these ideas. Over the course of the 20th century, as from 1950 on, as America in particular took the lead, and, but also it's been, become a global uh, effort to look at creativity, to theorize about this idea, to, to, to give it meat, um, it became more and more democratized. Indeed, the humanists said it's something everybody had and had to exercise. Mm -hmm. In order to be a full human being, you had to be creative. Um, so we have this, we have all of these theories. They're very different. Um, and these are our cultural concepts. Remember, I come from, from cognitive linguistics, right? So I'm saying it's not a thing. And mm -hmm. this is what mm. Glavinu would say, uh, this is what Clapp would say, I believe. I, I hate to put words in their mouths, although I think in Glavinu's case I can quote him on this. Um, it's not a thing. It's not, it's not something you have. It is an action and a participation and a, role, a set of roles that you can take up. Uh, and that changes many, many things. Now, it's not that this comes out of nowhere, you know, these are just a bunch of naysayers. Because we started out in the 1950s talking about it as divergent thinking, and mm -hmm. it was a trait, right? It was a way, it was a kind of association pattern that an individual tended to have, and we did all kinds of testing over decades on it. Mm -hmm. And we've come away, the proponents of divergent thinking today, after decades, Mark Runko uh, has done, uh, you know, if anything, is the voice on this, and as editor of Creativity Research Journals, in a wonderful position to look at this research. And he said, Today, it is a useful estimate of a potential of creativity. It is not creativity, and his actual quote says, I emphasize estimate and potential. Mm. And most of the work that, you know, most of the, most of the longitudinal studies put in the low, uh, and put 0.3 or 0.3s, the correlations between later achievement and, um, and uh, divergent thinking testing. So it's something that, yes, may describe someone, but it's not something, yes, you may have a certain kind of, of thinking, but that doesn't determine how you participate in your society. It influences it. Mm -hmm. So we've moved mm -hmm. away from that, and we moved more toward talking about what are the practical influences here. And think about how we live our lives today. In our interconnected electronic world, on a daily basis, we see this collaborative aspect of ideation, and we see how it's the integration of these ideas into broader meaning systems that matters, right. not just having the idea. Right. And this, this to me is, it's humbling because, you know, the idea isn't, it's not just something that comes from me. It's not a trait that I have. It's something that I have to participate in. It's a role that I need, or several roles that I need to find. And the idea doesn't just exist within me. It's a part of my world and the world is a part of me. So it's an incredibly powerful and I think humbling idea, but it, it gives hope, I think, because it, it does say that everyone can participate in their roles and in their own ways. 
and it brings in ethics. I mean, mm -hmm. I think this right. is critical to what uh, you're interested in here in terms of conflict resolution and peace and, and, and uh, issues of interpersonal relationships, right? Shauna Moran has done some wonderful writing, and, and one of the current um, uh, themes in, uh, or emerging themes in educational re in, in creativity research is the look, is looking at the dark sides, is looking mm -hmm. at the downsides, right? And one of the things that she writes about, among other things, is that we have traditionally completely separated ethics from creativity because mm -hmm. we thought of creativity just as the ideation. Right. And after all, I'm not going to tell you, don't, don't think of that because it might have bad, it might, bad consequences, right? I couldn't if I wanted to. In Cassere's terms, we are symbol-making animals, right? Symbols, ha symbols have d dynamics. Thoughts ha have dynamics. You're always going to be thinking of new things. But how those ideas get integrated into your thinking and into the social systems around you, that's an ongoing problem. And those field roles, right, about how what we do with it, how we elaborate it, how we select it, how, what, what uh, applications we make for those ideas, that's where we stop dividing, oh, creativity is one thing and ethics is another, and we can start saying, no, people think of things all the time and that's what we need to do. We need right. to think. But we also need to then think about how we integrate it into our lives, our communities, our culture. Mm -hmm. Right. It seems like there are existential stakes at hand, that every action we make is therefore so important because it's, it's a part of our greater you know, role in society and our greater world. Yes, yes. And as a matter of fact, in talking about creativity as ideology, one of the key points that I make, as I said, it's a very practical, functional thing, right? It's the way we think about change and, and promote change. Mm -hmm. But one of the things it does is it's provided a conceptual site to think about and debate the idea of agency. Mm -hmm. What is the relationship of the individual to deterministic forces? And we've had a series of different ideas about that. Um, you know, the trait theorist, when Guilford originally read it, wrote about this, so his, it was 1950, right? Think about this at moment. Because, you know, 1950 today, you say, oh, that's the middle of the 20th century. No, 1950 is the beginning of the Cold War. <laughs> the Soviet Union shortly before has, has just uh, done, has just conducted their first nuclear tests. Uh, duck and cover is coming into the American vocabulary. And when Guilford makes his famous speech calling for the psychological study of creativity in America, to, by the way, a room full of IQ testers and behaviorists who are not really interested in this. Um, he is saying that what we have to do is we have to find the kids who have potential and we have to give them the best education we can in order for American business and government to succeed in the world. It is for culture to use people for success. Mm. Then the humanists come along Carl Rogers, Abraham Maslow, and they have a, the exact opposite point of view. We have one drive, it's self-realization, and culture gets in our way, mm -hmm. especially education. They love beating up on education. Um, and so culture is the bad guy now. And then you have um, people, then you have like existentialists like Rollo May saying again, yes, you are, it is the individual, but the individual is making culture and himself existentially, as you right. said, Melissa, um, in the process of the creative act. And then you have people like Gruber, who I worked with, who said, no, the individual has agency, but is developing 
as an intentional being in a historical and cultural context. And that's what this participatory synthesis is building off of very explicitly as Gruber's work on that from the individual point of view and people like Chicks and Baha'i and Keith Sawyer, et cetera, more from the sociocultural point of view. And this, this tension between the individual and the culture that you bring up is, is so um, important, I think, especially, as you mentioned, for the world of conflict resolution and, and peace building. Mm -hmm. And um, I wonder if you could comment on how this concept of creativity, and particularly as you bring it up as a agency, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of the questions of agency that it arises, how it's useful in promoting uh, conflict resolution. I think that where we're going with it, again, toward, uh, away from this pure ideation model and toward looking at ideation in a socio-historical context and as part of a change process, <coughs> I think that this has huge implications. Um, at the very basis, we have, we're moving away from this idea of a competition in which have, you have to claim you have an idea, which after all, if any of us ever, you know, I just wrote a book, right? Everybody's saying, oh, it's a very unusual take. But at, at the beginning, I talk about some, you guys and some of your colleagues, right, of my students, the, that's where I got these ideas uh, that didn't develop out of my head like Athena from the head of Zeus. It developed out of constant in con, uh, contact and uh, interactions with students and colleagues and, uh, and books. So you move away from this idea of competition to participation. So that's huge. And then you go back to what we were just talking about around ethics. It allows, it gives us a way of, without trying to put the kibosh on thinking, uh, becoming thought police, it gives us a way to think about our ongoing challenges of how we integrate novelty, how we think about change, and maybe give us a little more sense of agency at the big level of thinking about how fast and what kind of change we want. Right. Um, <clears throat> Can I add something to that? Yeah, okay. go ahead. <laughs> I know that I just keep going. We started and... Uh, um, I know. actually, I think it's um, very beautiful that you brought up uh, working with our colleagues and coming up with your ideas from that. I remember uh, in one of the chapters in your book, you wrote that uh, we're not just influenced by our relationships, but we develop through our relationships. And... I th that idea really stuck with me, I think. And it's made clear by what you just said with, you know, it, this didn't come out of you as if, as if you know, by the sprites or the spirits, right. you know. It, mm -hmm. it, it comes out of us through our, our relationships with the world and with other people. Yeah. And it makes the world an important part of it. Right. right. A lot of, as we have debated this idea of agency, the more extreme individualistic perspectives that have made culture the bad uh, actor in the whole thing, that means you're fighting against culture. And this, and the perspectives that we're taking today with the social and, and cultural uh, psychologists is more, no, we're, we're using the aspects of culture to change culture. And if you think about it, it's always been that way, like the great ones, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you think about, uh, Gruber wrote uh, his groundbreaking work on Darwin in a book called Darwin on Man, which uh, American, uh, Scientific American in the, uh, in the year 2000 called one of the uh, 100 or so best books of the 20th century in science. Um, and 
what he did is he traced Darwin's thinking. And if we look at what Darwin was doing, he was pulling enormous resources from his culture. The idea of natural selection is a tiny move. Artificial selection in animal breeding and in breeding uh, in botany and breeding types of roses, very well established. Natural selection at that point, very well established, but as a force that did not allow non-adaptive mutants from existing. All he had to do was put those two ideas together <laughs> to come up with natural selection. It was a this tiny move, and it all... And it, was, and it addressed the, the issues of his education, his culture, his background, everything that he had come, taken from his culture. So it starts with culture, but also ends with it. The only reason we can think of him as someone we would study is because he's become canonical. And all the people after him who built on the theory and have given us neo-Darwinism and have completely changed how we think about evolution from when he thought about it, he did not even have access to Mendel's work on genetics at the time, those are the people who have made it something we would study and worth studying. So we begin with culture and we end with culture. Mm. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Mm. I was going to bring up that um, there is, in terms of this ethics, uh, a very famous uh, sociocultural hist uh, creativity theorist, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Uh, and Mihai Csikszentmihalyi wrote a book about creativity back in the 90s, and when, which was based on a bunch of um, interviews he had done with people who were eminent in their fields. And in that book, it's a little buried, but there's a wonderful, wonderful passage where he talks about the field and the people who integrate these ideas as they as selects and integrate them on a social level. And he talks about how, A, they can make missteps and really negative things can happen, but he cites Jonas Salk as talking about this idea within science of being good ancestors, of being, of producing a world that is, so that you will be seen as a good ancestor, passing on a world and a culture that's better. And the only thing that makes that compelling is if you see us as part of it, not yeah. outside of it. And one thing that you bring up in your, in your book, too, is talking about how important it is to think about when we're promoting creativity, what we're promoting, and you give some questions about you, what kind of future do we want to be making? Yes. And um, I'm hoping we can focus maybe on some of the arts-based programs that you, you sure. work with. Sure, um, And think about kind of how the concept of creativity fits into that. And, um, you know, also <coughs> thinking about promoting this kind of creativity that you're talking about in context of conflict. Yeah, I do do a lot of work with museums and youth development programs and art uh, education programs. Not because creativity is only in the arts. I'm not, not trying to say that at all. I actually like working with arts-based programs just because I like working with arts-based programs. I like, <laughs> I like art. I like theater. I love, mm -hmm. music, love hanging out at museums. <laughs> um, and, but also because it is sort of an indigenous idea to these fields, it's not one you are trying to import and adapt to something like a business or marketing group, et cetera. Um, so I'd like to talk about one program, if I could, that I've mm -hmm. done a lot of work Please. with um, over the last five years. Uh, it's kind of a remarkable theater-based youth development program called the Possibility Project here in New York City. Um, <clears throat> it began in Washington back in the 90s. Uh, and now is based lar largely here, but also in other cities in America and, and a few others around the world. And what happens in this program with adolescents is uh, it's not school-based, so they come from around across the city. Um, young people 
tell their stories in a big scale musical. Uh, and this is not, you know, this is not your grandmother's musical. This is, uh, these are really hard hitting stories. Yeah. These are stories of incest and gang violence and homophobia. And um, these are real, and drug abuse and uh, self mutilation and depression. These are really the harsh things that many teenagers face. And so it was obviously, I mean, I had been to some of the shows. I uh, knew the executive director, and I'd been to some of the shows. And these are the shows you, I always cry at. I've seen a gazillion of these, I always cry. I'm not a crier either. I also cried. cried when I went to the show. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, they are, because you know how much the actors have put into this, and you see really what they've gone through. Yeah. And I started this, actually, my work over years with this program is a little bit of a parallel with my own, the, my own thinking. Because I went into this, and I was asked to evaluate the outcomes of the program, and it was a great opportunity. We had a wonderful grant from the Lumina Foundation to do this. And we looked at, we, we set up a, a big mixed methods study where we had a comparison group and a test group, and we did pre and post uh, surveys on both groups. We did uh, lots of observations. We did uh, 34 interviews with the participants, and we did a whole series of group discussions with the participants, and we, and we had a huge amount of data coming out of this. But I went in thinking, okay, talking to these kids, well, let me talk about the kids for a minute. It's <laughs> yeah. just an amazing program. You sit down and we do pilot interviews, right? And so you've got this 17-year-old in front of you, and this he or she, and, and, and it, it's true for all, for so many of the kids, um, would talk with such poise about really horrible things that had happened in their lives, such comfort and poise, and then with such compassion about their fellow cast members and the things they had gone through, and the understanding that you, they really, you never know what another person's gone through. You, this is sort of this humility that is not indigenous to most 17-year-olds, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, I don't know what this... This person may have been really obnoxious today, but I don't know what's going on with them, so I'm going to give them what we call amnesty and go on. Or the idea that, you know, used to, I thought that if somebody challenged me on the street, they made me fight, and now I realize that I make the decision then how I'm going to respond. It sounds totally like skills for conflict resolution. It is. In a, right. Right. Teaching, well, analytic way yeah, to put it. But. And teaching the kids empathy. Yes. Which is so, like, your world is not just, cre it, it, there are mo there's more than just your world. The world is comprised of many worlds. And yes. through mm -hmm. this program, you're exposed to the worlds of your peers. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, actually, that's what we found, too. We tested on a number of uh, social communication skills. Uh, among them were initiating relationships, providing emotional support, asserting influence, your self-disclosure to your friends, and conflict resolution. And what we found is that our test group had very significant differences around the self-disclosure. Like I said, they're very poised in talking about their lives and other people's lives. It's, it's almost disorienting. Uh, providing emotional support, the empathy issue, and conflict resolution. And that's where they come out of this with. So I went into this study, right? I think, this is great. So these kids, they, they take their stories, they tell each other their stories, they make this play 
out of those stories, right? So they will take general themes within the group because it's a big cast. Mm -hmm. It's like a, a 70 or 80 kids in the cast. And they'll have five storylines that reflect the overall themes and draw from the particular storylines. And so I thought, okay, it, it, this shows how how pervasive the idea of creativity is and these these values. I thought, well, this is all about self-authoring and taking control of your story and being able to, you know, take control of your destiny and all of that good stuff. But when I studied them, I realized it was something completely different going on. So they go through a series of workshops in which they deconstruct big social labels like gender uh, stereotypes, racial stereotypes, sexual orientation issues, ageism, those sorts of things. At the same time, they are building this sense of empathy. So many of the participants in this program would always would point to the first uh, rehearsal. 100 kids get together, they know each other very well, they come from about 35 different schools in New York City. A few of them may know each other, but mostly they don't. Um, and they brainstorm issues that um, teenagers face. And they come up with the same kinds of issues we see in the plays, right? Mm -hmm. Really hard-hitting stuff. So then the, they put one issue on a big uh, flip chart sheet, and they put all the flip chart sheets around the room, and everybody gets post-it notes, and you can just write something anonymously about what your experience is, and you put it up on the sheets. And you don't really know other people, so you don't know who to watch, and so people, they, they do it. And so many of the kids would talk about that being this huge aha moment, that they would stand in front of, let's say, the one on gang violence, and they would realize they weren't alone. Mm -hmm. For the first time, they realized they really weren't alone. Other people, and, and people that didn't seem to be too like them, because maybe there was nobody in this room they felt like was like them, had gone through these similar things. So then they go through all this, and then ultimately they end uh, at about three months they have this kind of culminating point where they have closed-door session, session, and anyone who wants to can take a few minutes and just tell your life story. No one applauds. No one asks questions. You just listen, and you just talk. And then they go away, and they, and they come up with an outline for the play, and then they workshop the actual play. So what's happening here? As I watched it, I lived with this group for two, different, for two years, right, doing this. They're not taking control of their story, they're sharing it. In this process, nobody plays their own storyline. So if you were a victim of sexual abuse, you do not play the lead in the sexual abuse storyline. Somebody else does. Mm -hmm. So instead of you taking ownership of your story, you have given your story mm -hmm. to your colleagues, and they are trying to figure out the positive solution to your story. Mm -hmm. And then even within that dynamic of, of, the, of the scene group, as you workshop and you try to figure out how the, what the lines will be and what the positions will be, everybody can't make it all the time, right? And so different actors will have to play different roles other than the ones they're assigned. Mm -hmm. So they get to experience the dynamic from different perspectives. And it is this making of the personal social and this link that ultimately is so empowering and gives these kids such poise. Right. And even though they aren't playing their own storylines, what I really loved about the show is that even given that, they were still acting in such a genuine way. Yes. That these, even though the storyline wasn't theirs, it was still true to them in many ways. 
Well, and I think that just shows how much they've shared it. Exactly. How much they really feel that I am doing this for my right. colleagues. Mm-hmm. Right. And another thing that I found really beautiful is that the show is is because of who is sitting in the audience. A lot of the audience members are these kids' families, these kids' friends, you know, maybe outside of the immediate school circle. It's The show is almost like a coming out of sorts. It is. For the entire community and... I found that to be so powerful and empowering, both for the students that are in the show and for, you know, the members of the community as a whole. It's so true. I mean, because the people in the audience are the ones implicated in the stories, right? Right. (laughs) And I didn't really, you know, I thought about that, but until I spent a year working with them, developing these, and then was at, at these stories, and then was at the premiere, and you sit there and you go, oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. What are we about to do? What right. are we gonna do? <laughs> um, because we're, we're short on time, unfortunately, I'm gonna move us along a little sure. bit and focus, or just thinking how you know, if someone wants to be involved in such work, do you have suggestions for ways to create such um, programs or bring such programs to life, and um, you know, just to um, recap and throw one thought in from your your previous work that I'm coming back to is you talk about world making and it seems like they're able to create this in this Mm -hmm. space at the possibility project um in Harlem that you meant you're talking about and so you talk about how you know they're able to remake this world as a good place that's Mm -hmm. safe and exciting and worthwhile for themselves for the group and the community you know do you have any resources that you would point people to um well, we did a wonderful report uh, uh, on, on this, on, on what we've done with the Possibility Project. But I guess in a more general sense, um, I would just have some general guidelines, is we have to always be aware. Again, the whole study of creativity has been about thinking about agency in relationship to historical and cultural context. And it's very easy to fall into a situation where you think about all of these individuals coming together, whether they're young people or adults, and then going away, and that you are not in creating a world in this, these constructions, but you are. And I think you need to take that on, that you take on that responsibility, that integration process that has to happen. In that process, what you want to do, one of the things the Possibility Project teaches us is you want to continually link the personal to the social. Uh, and that there are many ways to do that. I've seen that done in classrooms. I've seen it done in youth development programs. I've seen it done in art programs. There are many ways, and it depends on what you're trying to teach, the exact thing you do, but you're always trying to make the individual's perspective of value to culture. And when people get down on education, and it happens so often. It's a, you know, it is such a scapegoat in our in our culture that whatever's wrong, education must have caused it. Uh, it's very often that the individual perspective wasn't uh, honored in terms of the cu- bigger cultural processes going on. And the answer to that is not just to make it solipsistic for the kids and just make it all about them. <laughs> The answer is to continually bridge the personal mm-hmm. and the cultural. And when you're dealing with things like the Possibility Project is, 
a lot of these kids on this pro, you know, who stay, you know, uh, uh, about 30% leave because it's a very intense program. It's all day, Saturday, all year long, and then, and then it's a production. Anyone who's been in theater knows what it's like just mm -hmm. before production. Um, so the kids who stay, a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them have gone through some really pretty serious traumas in their lives. And for them, being able to make that story social, not just personal, not being trapped in their story, right? What we're trying to do, and I think this is true for all conflict resolution at some level, is make people not feel trapped. Mm -hmm. That sense of agency is so huge and that there are options, there are roles to take up, there are ways to act. Right. It seems like bridging the individual with the social um, comes that's where roles come into play which roles do you take up in society yes and this thing that you point out about having agency in change yes and right. i think has to do with with those being able to deal with the dynamics in your own personality and taking on different spaces and um roles like you say i know that there's so much in your your book and at the end i love in the final note how you give these takeaways that um, such as the humility that comes with this approach to creativity. And um, I think that we're going to have to leave it um, here for now. Hopefully we can continue this conversation again. And I hope I can catch um, one of your talks. It sounds like that you have many people, like you were saying, coming to you to, to, for talks. And um, I just, Professor Hans and I learned so much from um, hearing you and talking with you about creativity and makes me so inspired to learn more it is a fascinating topic that is like you say so popular right now and um is there any concluding remarks or anything that either of you wanted to add I feel like we're cutting the conversation short there's so many things to talk about <laughs> um, thank you for having me it was it was lovely to talk with you and uh i and you're doing such interesting work here and i really uh i really support everything you guys are doing thank you so much yeah. and you're work is so inspiring for that I think and we need to keep exploring and analyzing these I think crosses between creativity and, and conflict resolution great yeah thank you so much for inspiring us over the past few years Professor Hansen and it, it's wonderful to have had this reunion of sorts <laughs> great thank you yeah thank you both so much and um, we'll link to um, resources on the, the podcast so that we can invite other people to, to join in the conversation as well. Great. So thank you to our listeners out there and um, good evening. Bye. The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnston and is titled Kingdom Stowaway.